back in the day. <laughs> March 2001, there was a basketball game that was being played. This basketball game was being played in the Staples Center in Los Angeles. The world champion defending Los Angeles Lakers were hosting the Boston Celtics. The Boston Celtics had this young player. He was very hyped, and um, he was actually from the L.A. area originally. And when he showed up on that day, he absolutely went off. He scored over 40 points, and even though the Lakers came back to win that game by five, uh, Shaquille O'Neal, who played for the Lakers at that point, was very impressed. And as he sat in his locker after that game, he called over to one of the reporters who was traveling with the Celtics from Boston. And uh, he, he, said, he said, come here. That's how Shaq talked, come here. And the reporter comes over, and uh, Shaq says, Paul Pierce is the blankety-blanky truth. Quote me on that. Don't edit it. Don't take anything out. Now, what we know about Shaquille O'Neal, Shaquille O'Neal loves to give people nicknames. In fact, a little known fact, when I played basketball with Shaquille one day, um, he gave me the nickname the Ice Skating Giraffe. Felt like that really captured uh, the the grace and, and the dignity of my game. It was interesting that Shaq gave this nickname the truth to Paul Pierce because what he would talk about later, even when he came to, to play with Paul Pierce and to win a championship with Paul Pierce, to watch Paul Pierce become an NBA Finals MVP was this notion that even though he had heard so much about him and people talked about um, how, how good and how smooth and how skilled his game was, um, to see it in person was even more impressive because it was to him at that point in time the definition of what a complete basketball player should be. And I mean, Shaq had played with and against a whole lot of really great basketball players at that point in time. But when he played against a young Paul Pierce, he felt like he had found something that was elusive. He had found the truth. The truth can be hard to find sometimes. In fact, there are times where the truth can even be impossible to find. In the book of Jeremiah, the prophet is given a directive by God to go and to find people who are seeking truth. And that might sound like an exciting thing for us to, to, to go look for. That sounds like something that we want to find, find truthful people. Find people who are, are, are seeking the truth. It's, it's not that fun, you know, if um, your, your, your parents call you into the room and say, hey, could you go to the store and get a head of lettuce? Or uh, could you go to the store and get, get a, a bundle of carrots? It's kind of like, eh, I don't know. But if they give you something exciting, can you go to the store and get a pizza and a two liter? You'll be like, yeah, man, I'll go. I'll go look for that. Unfortunately, even though Jeremiah was called to find something that was appealing, however, Jeremiah demonstrates for us why he is called the weeping prophet. Because this thing that God asked him, that God told him to go find, was something that he was not going to find. Jeremiah 5 starts out saying this, Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. That is a very loaded first verse, isn't it? When we get to the end of the first verse, God is talking about needing to pardon an entire people. That means that the people have been, not only have they been um, indicted, 
but they have been found to be guilty, and now their punishment has been set. If you were here on Sunday, we talked about this complete and, and, and almost total destruction of the people at the hands of numerous empires. And we talked about what, what that meant in the history of the people of Israel and Judah. We talked about that, that glimmering hope that they did have for restoration, but there, there was going to need to be some punishment. And, and God, even in his justice and even in, in his truth, is saying, look, there's an opportunity here for pardon. But you have to go find, you have to go find that person, that, that one person who is seeking after truth and who is trying to execute righteousness. You have to find that, that one person who is trying to not only figure out what is it that I should be doing, but then they are going out and they are being obedient. They are taking that knowledge that they have acquired. They're exercising this, this, this praxis, and they are living it out. And if you can find that, I will pardon my people. But at the beginning of that verse, it's pretty clear that it's going to be tough for Jeremiah to find that person because God doesn't say, hey, go for a stroll around the town and count up how many people you can find who are seeking truth and, and, and executing justice. No, God says, look, you got to run to and fro. And I have this picture of just like panicked Grover from Sesame Street, like running around screaming at the top of his lungs, his jaws completely unhinged. And, and that little Adam's apple thing, just oh, la, 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 truthful person and like arms in the air running all over the place because there is no more time. And in fact, I think what God knows is he has given the prophet, a bit of a fool's errand. Because what does the, the, the chapter here go on to say? Though they say as the Lord lives, yet they swear falsely. O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth. You have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refuse to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock, and they've refused to repent. Then I said, these are only the poor. They have no sense for they do not know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. I will go to the great and I'll speak to them, for they know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God, but they all alike had broken the yoke. They had burst the bonds. Our friend Jeremiah, he is, he is here and he is explaining to us a people that are indeed not the truth. He's explaining to us a people who aren't even trying to find the truth anymore. He's explaining to us a people who are not living rightly. And in fact, the opposite of living justly, they are living unjustly. And if that, that, that vision from, from Jeremiah 2 that we saw on Sunday is indeed how God feels when, when a people have set their hearts against him, when these people are not living the truth, when these, these people are not executing justice, then, then, then doesn't that, as I encouraged us to do at the end of that chapel service on Sunday, doesn't that cause us to at least pause? To at least pause and ask the question, when Jeremiah encountered these people, when God encountered these people, why didn't he look at them and say, yes, they are the truth. Up in verse 23, Jeremiah gives some more descriptors of the people. And there's a word here that turns up a couple of times that I think starts to get to the core of what the problem was. But this people, they had a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. 
They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God who gives the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. There was something that was wrong with the people down at their very core. There was something that was rotten with the people down at their very core. And at the beginning of this chapter, it talks about how they say, yes, we worship God. But what God and Jeremiah are seeing is that they could say whatever they want to say, and they can make whatever assumptions it is that they want to make. But their hearts, when you look at their hearts, their hearts are not right. In fact, their hearts are this lethal combination of being stubborn and rebellious. These hearts, they are are stuck in their way. These hearts, they are not willing to change. They are not willing to be transformed. They cannot be taught. God has been patient with them. God has communicated with them for years and for years and years. They have even tasted a bit of the wrath of God, but, but, but their hearts are still stubborn. And not only can they not be changed, but these hearts are, are, are rebellious. They're, they're not just apathetic. It's not even that they don't care. It's that they are running in the exact opposite direction that God wants them to run in. They have heard the commands. They have had examples set out before them and has been told them over and over and over again. They have not heeded the warnings. They are, in fact, rebels against the authority of God. And so instead of going toward God, instead of approaching God with this heart of humility in verse 23, it says that the people have turned aside and they have gone away. And what they are not saying in their hearts is let us fear the Lord our God. And God cannot understand why they won't fear him because what God is saying here in verse 24 is that indeed it has been God who has been faithful to them in spite of all their iniquities. It is still God who has summoned the earth and the space that is above the earth to provide for the people. It is indeed God who has given the people the rain in its season, the autumn rains and, and the spring rains. It is, it is God who has given them the harvest. It is the God who has appointed all of these good things, but they do not want to bask in the glory and in the riches of his goodness because their hearts are not right. And that's a really scary thing. It's a scary thing when you meet an individual whose heart is not right. It's a scary thing when, when, when you try to speak truth into that individual's life, but, but they push you away. It's a scary thing when you try to model for an individual what it is that, that they should do, and they just won't take that teaching it's a scary thing when you see a person who has indeed been, been re rebuked, who has been punished, and, and in the midst of all of that, instead of them being humbled, they just become more arrogant. They become more hard, and they continue to wander away from where they should go. But even scarier than that is when you get a bunch of people together whose hearts are not good 
whose hearts are not seeking truth and whose hearts are not seeking justice because then you don't just have this individual who is making bad choices. You don't just have this individual who is living outside of the bounds of of, of the will of God, but you have then a, a complete and total and utter depravity that Jeremiah speaks of in this chapter. He says this in in verses 30 and 31, that an appalling and a horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. And what will you do when the end comes? The prophet minces no words. You have prophets and you have priests and these people were, were set apart by God to have very specific tasks to tell people about how life is and how life should be, to remind people about how life was when the people were walking with God and, and, and nobody was listening to them. And, and there were these priests who they were set apart to usher people in, to be able to, to bow down at, at the throne of God, to, to help people to, to, to be cleansed and, and to be taught. And in fact, instead of working together for the betterment of, of the people, the prophets and the priests were, were cohorting together to lead people astray. And the people did not have the gumption to rise up and to say, no, you are not serving God. And in fact, and you're not serving God. You are leading us into the abyss. You are leading us into the fire. They did not demand something greater from their leaders. They did not have the understanding of, of the word of God in their hearts. And they did not have this desire to pursue the will and the work of God. They, they just wanted things that, that tickled their ears and they wanted things that, that, that brought them pleasure. This, this is totally broken system. It says here that the people loved to have it so. And what was it that they loved? What was it that we saw in Jeremiah 2 and that we see again in Jeremiah 5? What are these, these themes that we see? There are two themes that we see that were plaguing the people of God that they loved to have so. Things that God was calling them to do that they were not doing and they preferred it that way. And one of those things was, was sexual immorality. That's it. In, in, in chapter two, we talked about last, last Sunday how um, Jeremiah d- described the people as going in and out of essentially the house of, of, of harlots. And they were teaching people how to, how to sin even better than the, than the sinners knew how to sin. They were supposed to be the ones who were leading people in the right direction. People were coming to them and saying, oh, you got some, you got some tricks that I don't even know about yet. Hook, hook, hook me up. Teach me how to, how to sin a, a little bit better. That comes up here as, as Jeremiah talks about it in very stark terms, talking about his people as, as lusty stallions who are lusting after each other's wives. Sexual immorality has completely permeated who they are as a people and has come to become a hallmark of who they are. And the other thing that, that he talks about here is that the people of God are not taking care to deal with equity and justice, those who are vulnerable. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper, and they do not defend the rights of the needy. And when we think about those two things, when we think about sexual immorality, when we think about not helping the poor or the vulnerable, 
those seem like um, uh, two kind of distinct and different sins, don't they? It seems a little bit interesting that, you know, if you were going to struggle with things, that those are the two things that you would struggle with. Like, it seems like you might struggle with, like, you know, lying and cheating, or maybe you might struggle with, like, stealing and lying, but, like, adultery, sexual immorality, and not helping the poor? What's up with that? But I began to, as I began to think about it, I began to think, no, they, they kind of have the same root problem. And the problem was that the people's pursuit, the thing that the people were pursuing above all other things and even above their God, was their own personal pleasure. And so if that manifested itself sexually, then that is what they would pursue. And if it meant taking advantage of people who were in a vulnerable state, then that's what they would do. They didn't care if it was a, a legit ends or a legit means. They would just do whatever they needed to do to quench their, 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 their thirsts. And their thirst was not for God. Their thirst was simply for the flesh. And so they became numb to the needs of each other. They, become, they became numb to the needs of people around them. They were not speaking life or wholeness or, or completeness into other people's lives. And in fact, they were using each other. They were disposing of each other for their own entertainment and pleasure. And man, I'll tell you what, when you see the, the strength of the language that God uses there to talk about this, this, this people of God and these things that they are pursuing and how that makes God, God feel and how they cannot even stand in his presence, I think that as a, a, an American Christ follower, like, like that should make us feel a little bit nervous. That should make us feel a little bit uneasy. And that should give us quite a bit of, of pause. I think that, that what we tend to do, especially those of us who are in the church and who are Christians, we tend to sit back and we tend to look around and, and we say, yeah, man, you know what? It's hard on these streets to go out there because I don't see anyone out there who is pursuing truth or executing justice. What we fail to do is to look inside our own hearts to look inside our own churches, to look down our own pews, and to ask the question, are we being countercultural? The two things that I think kind of define our popular culture right now, or the one overarching thing I think that defines our popular culture right now is, is, is what? The pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of pleasure. I think as a country, we tend to be bowed down prostrate at, at these, these false gods, these false gods of, of pleasure, these false gods of self-preservation, these false gods of safety. We are pursuing a lot of the things, especially when it comes to sexual immorality, that the Israelites were pursuing. And we are holding at arm's length far too often those who are vulnerable and those who are in need because we are more concerned with our self-preservation than bringing wholeness and completeness into the lives of other people. You know, um, I think if we were to run to and fro through our streets, maybe we're not quite this far gone. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't live life with a sense of urgency, does it? That doesn't mean that we shouldn't look into our own hearts with a sense of urgency. That doesn't mean that, that we should wait before we are the people 
who turn our hearts and our minds toward the God who created us and toward the God who has redeemed us. Because what we know from a New Testament context is, is certainly we have been indicted and, and, and certainly we have uh, uh, been tried and certainly we've been found guilty. Certainly there is that, that, that pardoning that has happened. What would it look like if we, as the people of God who pro- profess to follow Christ, lived in the reality of that pardon? knowing that this thing that God has already given us, has already provided for us, is is all that we really need. This life in Jesus Christ that that frees us up to not feel like we have to chase all of these other things, but instead we can chase after truth, we can chase after justice, we can chase after righteousness. As we think about this, as we consider this, let's just take a moment um, in silence, because this is heavy stuff, and it's okay for it to be heavy. That's why God has given us these words. And as we sit in the heaviness, let us think about God. What would, in this place and in this time, our form of repentance be as we continue to sing out to you and cry out to you, our God?